you are here, a study of Ephesians, and Ephesians is absolutely one of my favorite little locations in um, our sacred scriptures in the New Testament, and I absolutely uh, could not get enough of Ephesians. I've taught it many, many times and am so thrilled to be back to, um, to explore it together with you all. Um, and so I have... Uh, written this this Bible study book, and I want to show you, I just want to walk through here right at the beginning, a couple of the features of the book, so that you'll kind of be familiar with it, and you'll know exactly how to attack it as you as you go home to do your homework this week. Um, first of all, turn to pages 8 and 9. On pages 8 and 9 in the book, you're going to see a chart. This is one of the first things I do when I start studying a book of the Bible, is I, I go in and I find all the little breaks and, and the passages that are put together in, in sections that seem to be um, the author's intention anyway, as far as kind of trains of thought that the, that the author is following. And I find those little breaks, and they're sometimes with chapters and sometimes they're not. Uh, the chapters and the verses, as I'm sure you know, are not inspired. They weren't in there at the beginning. Um, Paul and the other writers of our New Testament didn't put chapters and verses in um, when he was writing the original document. So we've gone in later and inserted those for the sake of reference so that things are easier to find. So um, breaking it up, breaking Ephesians up in, in, the, in the number of sections that, that I kind of wanted to teach, this is how it lays out. So this is how your chapters will follow as well. So every once in a while, it's just kind of useful to go back to that chart and kind of see where we're at in terms of the whole landscape of the book of Ephesians. So that's, uh, that's pages 8 and 9 in your workbook. And um, you'll kind of explore those. You'll see how those are coming together as we, as we move along. And then go ahead and turn to chapter 1, which is the very next page, the beginning of chapter 1, or week 1, called Meet the Saints. And... You will notice that in each chapter, there are three sections. So that's kind of like three days of homework. Um, sort of like three devotional days or three days of homework. I know most Bible study leaders do five, so you're welcome for that. <laughs> that's right. Piece of cake. You guys can handle this, right? Three days of homework in three sections. And then throughout... Um, each chapter, see one or two little sections in there. The, the first one I think we, we uh, encounter is on page 20. I think that's the first one we encounter. It might be the second. It, a little set, a little that's, in, that's, called, that's black, actually, background. That's called Greek to me. And one of the things that has been so beneficial for me is a little bit of familiarity with the Greek New Testament, um, remembering that that are given to us in our New Testament were originally written in Greek and then translated into English, um, it helps to, to, to explore a little bit of the Greek language. If you've ever studied any other language, you know that there are certain words or ideas that just simply don't, there's just not a word for it in English that means quite exactly the same thing. Or that if you're using a word or the, uh, an, an idea or a concept comes out of or originated in another language, it's good to sort of fill in those, those kind of meanings. So what, that's what I do with the little call-out sections, Greek to me. I just kind of take a little word and I explain a little bit more about it, um, about its original Greek content, what it means and how it was placed in that letter or why it was used by the author in the way that it was. And I hope that those are helpful to you. That is just a little bit of extra freebie stuff. Um, and then at the end of every chapter, at the very end of every chapter, you will see a section called Walk It Out. Walk It Out. In the section of Walk It Out, um, I feel so strongly about spiritual formation that, that we need to not only be exercising our minds and our intellects, we need to not only be exploring ideas with our brains, but we also need to be bringing those ideas down to the level of our hearts. And the quickest way to do that is actually through our bodies. So we're gonna get our bodies involved. We're gonna do spiritual exercises. So at the end of each chapter, the walk it out section means this is how you actually put this thing into practice. This is what we're talking about and this is how you put it into practice. So for example, um, at the end of chapter one, you have a walk it out section on page 20, 
one um, that's called Listening to Interruptions. Uh, that means that throughout the week, what I want you to do is, is just kind of pay attention to interruptions. The kind of things where during the week or whatever, during a day, your whole agenda is completely hijacked by something that came along and called for your attention and insisted that you pay attention. And normally, you know, we're fairly irritated or annoyed by those things, or maybe you are, if you're anything like me, you might be a little annoyed by, by those interruptions. But um, developing a spiritual practice of attending to those things, maybe opening your mind about what that might be about, if that could possibly be um, some sort of a divine appointment that, that God has scheduled on your calendar and didn't let you know about until it, until it happened. Um, it, just opening your mind to, to what kind of possibilities those interruptions might lead to is a great spiritual practice and a consistent reminder that God has got a plan. God is on it. He knows what he's doing. And many times we don't necessarily know what we're doing until it kind of happens to us. So be alert and awake to interruptions. Each week then, what I would recommend is when you, um, when you go home to do your homework, go to the end of the chapter and read the walk it out section. You'll have an exercise that you should think about during the week. And at some point during the week, try to do that spiritual exercise. Some of them take a little bit of planning or foresight, and some of them um, you can just, it, you do it, it kind of wraps right into to the fabric of your regular day. Um, and so the, it won't require any kind of planning or anything like that. Interruptions, for example, happen whether you know them or not. The, the, the point is paying attention to them. So that's what I'd recommend. Go to the end of the chapter, first thing every week. Look at the walk it out section and be prepared for that as you're studying as you go along. Okay, and in each chapter, you will also see a little section. I'm looking at page 14, right under uh, the Greek to me section on page 14. That's actually the first one. It's called Word in Color, Word in Color. And everybody should have gotten a box of colored pencils today, along with your book. Um, I love using colored pencils in the text of my Bibles. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to encourage you to do this. This is one, something that for me was absolutely life-changing when I learned I could write in my Bible. Um, I don't know what it was, but when I was growing up, I was, um, I don't know if it was just a generation or just the way my family treated Scripture or whatever, I, but I just felt like it was so wrong to write in Bibles. And no one told me that it was wrong to write in Bibles. I just, it just felt like, that's holy, that we shouldn't be, it's wrong. And other people would have all kinds of things underlined and circled, and I would think, that's really cool, but I'm afraid to do it myself. Um, it wasn't until I got to seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary that I was broken of that pattern. Um, finally, um, I began to, under some direction and some help from some teachers, I started to see uh, and notice patterns of words in Scripture. What, it, what we have before us in Scripture is a document. It's, it's literature. It's going to come to us in the form of words. And so the best way to, to make it part of who we are is to pay attention to those words. As we do that, we'll begin to notice patterns. Certain words or ideas, certain words or their synonyms will be repeated over and over and over again. If an author repeats something over and over and over again, the author is trying to say, hey, pay attention to this. This is important. This is a concept I'm trying to communicate. So what I want you to do is develop a habit, if you don't already have it, of noticing those patterns, noticing repetitions of words when things are said over and over and over again. And so I have also, in order to, if they, and just in case there's anybody here who's also nervous about writing in your Bibles, <clears throat> I wanted to free you up, girls. And so I had printed in the back of your book the entire letter to the Ephesians. So the entire letter of the Ephesians is printed in the back of your book. Nice wide margins, nice lots of white space, you know, because I always felt like in the, in the most English translations of our Bibles, you know, in our leather-bound Bibles or whatever, there's just not enough 
white space. There's, the margins are too narrow, the font is teeny tiny, and so what we have here is the letter to the Ephesians in great big font and with nice wide margins, lots of white space, so there's plenty of room to have a good time, okay? So just don't be afraid to mess up. Just go for it. Make an absolute mess out of this copy of Ephesians in the back of your Bibles. I might be the only Bible study teacher who you've ever heard say, don't, don't worry about bringing your Bible to Bible study. Okay, don't, you can bring it if you'd like, and I absolutely hope that it is a constant companion. But if you don't want to bring your, your Bibles, what I, this is what, this, this copy of Ephesians in the back of your books, this is what I will be referring to. I, uh, the, the, the copy here is in the English Standard Version, ESV. It is, um, on the scale of if we put if we put over on the right end of the scale super super conservative literal um, translation of scripture and then over on the left end of the scale we put paraphrases that aren't actually translations but they're paraphrases like the message um, or the new living or something like that we put that over on on one end then then the ESV is going to be somewhere around in here okay it's not super super perfectly literal but it's around in here it's definitely on the literal side of the scale and so it is a very very true and faithful copy of of the New Testament in English and yet it's still readable so I love studying from the English Standard Version of the Bible so that's the one I had printed in the back of your book and I want you to be able to take that and just start coloring all over it. We're going to start right now. So take out your colored pencils and um, take out your yellow pencil, your yellow pencil. And I want you to notice something. And does anybody have a tissue that I could borrow? Anybody have a, a tissue? Chris, do you have a tissue? So open your books to page 129. <clears throat> Thank you. I started crying in that, you know? Thank you. I got it. I'm good. Thank you very much, sweetie. Open your books, page 129. And take that yellow pencil. And I hesitate to, to um, boss you around in terms of what colors to use and how to do all this. But some, I'm not going to give you a ton of instruction on it. I want, what I want you to do is kind of explore it and mess around with it for yourself. By the way, raise your hand if you've done a K. Arthur study, if you've done precept studies, then you've done this before, you're familiar with this. Um, when, I was, when, when I was in seminary, like I told you, I, I was afraid to, to, write in my, to write in or color anything in my Bibles. But through a, a K. Arthur study Bible that I found, I went to the used bookstore and I found a K. Arthur study Bible um, that she prints study Bibles without any study notes. I love that. Um, no notes to kind of get you distracted or start interpreting for you. Just the text of scripture, big wide margins. And then in the front of her Bibles, she, she you know, suggests these ways of coloring in words. And so I saw that. I was inspired by it. I started doing it. I bought a used Bible. <laughs> I did, I, wow, what a find. I found a used study Bible at, at the used bookstore, and somebody else's name was literally on the cover of it that had been scraped off. Whoever, whatever student this was had a short attention span. They started in the Gospel of John, and they got a couple pages in doing some symbols, and then they bailed out, and they sold their study Bible. So I had that. I thought the very best way to get started is to go on home and just start with the cover. So I took a Sharpie, and I wrote all over the cover of the study Bible, taste and see that the Lord is good. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, if I write on the cover, then nothing's stopping me. You can't stop me now. And that's when I started um, coloring in and making notes and making those observations in my study Bible. And it was a total life changer for me. So hopefully this will be the same thing for you. If you've never done this before, you'll get your courage up, get your colored pencils out, and let's look at something. So what I want you to do with your yellow pencil is we're going to mark any repetition of God, G-O-D, we are also going to mark, we're going to do all the, all the Trinity in yellow, okay? So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So if you see the name Jesus, or you see Holy Spirit, 
or you see the word spirit with a capital S, that's referring to the Holy Spirit, God. So God, Father, we run into some repetitions of beloved with a capital B, that refers to Jesus. Um, so any repetition or any mention of God, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, I want you to just color that in, circle it, and then color it in solid with yellow. Circle it and color it in solid with yellow, all right? We'll uh, go through it together. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, so there's one, there's your first mention of God's name, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So far three, right? And I'm in verse two. Okay. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's one mention. Circle it all. God our Father is one mention. Circle the whole thing and then color it in yellow. And the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one mention of God. Circle it and color it in in yellow. We're going to go down to verse three. Blessed be the God and Father, God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's another mention, who has blessed us in Christ, there it is again, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us. Now, I, would, I like to do um, pronouns as well. Even as he, circle it in yellow, and color it in in yellow. Even as he, he chose us in him, there's another one, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Another one, him. In love, he, there's another one, he predestined us for adoption to himself. There it is again. As sons, through Jesus Christ, there's a mention of Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace through us. Oh, wait. It, praise of his glorious grace with which he, there's another one, he has blessed us in the beloved. We'll stop there. Count how many. How many? 19. Good. 19. Anywhere from 16 to kind of 19 is, is what I get almost consistently when I start counting it like that, depending on how I do pronouns and all that kind of thing. A little bit different. Okay. That was six verses. The first six verses of the letter to the Ephesians. And God is mentioned 16, 19 times in six verses. So this is what this is will start to dawn on us, that the Bible is about God. And I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you that I was in seminary before I really figured that out. That the Old Testament is about God and the New Testament is about God. And specifically about Jesus Christ, about the revelation of God that took place in the, in the person and the man of Jesus Christ. And we often will go to scripture thinking, what does it say about me? What is this teaching me about me? What do I learn about me? And the Bible's actually not about you. The Bible is actually about God. Now, the truth is that we're going to learn a lot about ourselves, and especially in Ephesians, because Paul, the author, is going to introduce us to ourselves. He is going to show us who we are, but who we are has everything to do with who God is. We must be solid on the idea of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit if we're going to have any concept or any right concept of who we are. Our identity is wrapped up in Him. Our identity is defined by Him. And so the best way to learn about who we are is to get very, very clear on who God is. As we go through this, the first exercise you're going to do is to sit down and run all the way through the letter to the Ephesians from beginning to end and mark God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in yellow, okay? And then you're going to look back at it and you're going to see it's yellow, yellow, yellow. It's yellow everywhere because this is about the nature of God. 
Um, hey, Ruana, where's Ruana? Are you here, sweetie? Uh, where is she? Where's Ruana? What time am I supposed to finish? Does anybody know? Three? I can have the whole time? Okay. Are you ready? Buckle up, buttercups. So I want you to have a good old time with your pencils. Don't let them scare you. Don't let them intimidate you. Don't, don't sit there and go, I'm not artistic. I don't know anything about colors and all of that. Just, just have a good time. You may take to it. It may be life-changing to you like it has been to me, or it may, it may be something that you're like, nah, I, I don't know. I'm, uh, it's not for me. But I hope that you'll give it a shot while we go through Ephesians and make an absolute mess of, of the, the copy of Ephesians that we have in the back of our Bibles. It is not sacrilegious. It's the opposite, to make these observations and then to allow them to make sense to you. So I wanted... Uh, to make sure that as we jump in to Ephesians, that we are orienting ourselves correctly in our Bibles. Ephesians is a letter in our New Testament scriptures written by the Apostle Paul, as we just read. He claimed to be the author, and that's, that's who we believe to be the author. Written by the Apostle Paul, and he was writing this letter. It's an epistle. Sometimes you'll hear letters referred to as epistles. To the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was a group of people who um, meant a great deal to Paul. There are times in our New Testament when Paul is actually writing or, or the authors are actually writing to people they'd never met. Just, there's a group of believers there and so they're writing to a church, but that is not the case with Ephesus. When Paul was doing his missionary career, he did his missionary career and we have um, a pretty decent written record of three missionary journeys in the book of Acts. And when Paul arrived in Ephesus, and he, he writes about it in Acts chapter 19, no, it's actually, I'll find it. And he, he wrote about it in Acts chapter something or other. And when he did, what we find is that Paul actually stayed in Ephesus for three years, which is the longest he stayed anywhere. He was a church planter, and usually he would run into a town, he'd, he would preach at the synagogue, and then he would take his ministry outside the synagogue or outside uh, the Jewish community, and he would begin to preach to the Gentiles, and he would gather a group of people together until there was a nice little group of people, and then he'd call that a church, that was a church, and then he'd move on to the next town, and he would do the same thing in the next town. But in Ephesus, he stayed. He stuck around there. And he rented a lecture hall, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And he lectured there every day. Now, I was able to visit Ephesus several years ago. I actually led a, a trip of tourists, and we stopped, one of our stops was in Ephesus. It was definitely the most impactful stop that, that, that we made on this journey. Ephesus has done a wonderful job. If you've ever been there, you've probably seen these ruins. They've done a wonderful job of preserving all of these ruins. So you're walking actually down the street, actually on the same stones that the Apostle Paul would have walked down and would have walked over as he walked down the street. Streets that are the same streets, located in the same location as they were when he was there. My imagination just goes crazy. It gets down to the end of this one street, I'll never forget, and at the end of it is this huge building. It's the ruins of a library that, truth be told, the library wasn't actually there when Paul was there, but I imagine it that way anyway. Uh, because I, my, my brain is not, you know, constricted necessarily to facts all the time. And, and so I imagine Paul sauntering past this library, and I think that right beside it there was the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and then right on the, in the corner on the side of the lecture hall was a Starbucks. I'm positive. Okay? And, and I just imagine, but wouldn't it have been wonderful every day over your lunch hour to be able to just stop in at Starbucks and then, and then stop in and listen to the Apostle Paul lecture. To be able to just hear him teach. And then he stuck around there long enough to disciple some young men and women. He gathered a church around himself and then he also spent time with them, training them and teaching them. And they became leaders of the churches in the region that were to come. So this is the letter to the church at Ephesus. Now it's important to note in our New Testament letters, especially the Pauline letters, that they were meant to be circulatory. They were not necessarily meant to be written to one church and then stay put. But you'll see at the end of the letter, he said, now you read the letter to Laodicea and make sure that the Laodiceans read the letter that I wrote to you because he wants the, these letters to be circulatory. He wrote letters 
And then he wrote them to a certain church, and then he said, now, I want you to, what they would do is they would sit down and somebody would make a very, very careful copy of the letter. Word by word, letter by letter, they would make a careful copy of the letter, a perfect copy of the manuscript. They would keep the copy and they would send the original to the church down the road. And then they would make a meticulous copy, and then they would keep their copy and send the original to the church down the road, which is how, a hundred years or so later, we had many, many faithful copies of Scripture available to us through, and then that's also how the original scholars decided which letters are important enough to actually include in our canon of Scripture. They were the ones that were copied over and over again. They were the ones that were associated with an apostle or with somebody who was the head of the church. They, they were the ones that, that were repeated over and over. People knew them by heart. If you started to, to recite them, people would just start reciting them along with you. Another important thing to, to understand about the original letters that we're reading is that we call the readers an audience. A lot of times the, the original readers, I will say original readers, or I will say audience, because they were listeners. They, most of them were illiterate and couldn't read. And they sure didn't have what I have, which is like three entire shelves of different translations of the Bible available to pull off, or on my phone, hundreds of translations of the English scriptures that I have available to me to pull up and start reading. They, most of them were illiterate and would have never, ever laid eyes on a, on a Bible of their own, but they had one letter that was written to the whole church and one person who could read would call everybody else together and read it out loud to them. They would read it verse by verse, and they would stop and talk about it. Read it and talk. Read it and talk. What does that sound like? Monday afternoon Bible study? Is that what it sounds like? That's exactly how they encountered Scripture for the first time, and that's how we're going to encounter Scripture as well. So we're gonna, we get our own copies. We get to read them. We get a mark in them. We get a color and outline and, and highlight. And then also we get together and we read them together and study them together. So this is a letter. It may be a while since the last time you received a handwritten letter. It's kind of a lost art these days. We don't do it as much as we used to. When I, I don't know about you, but when I go to my mailbox and I get a letter and it's like got handwriting on it, I'm like, what, really? And I, you know, rub my finger on it to make sure it's not just some font that somebody's using to mess with me and look like it was handwritten, you know, because it just doesn't happen very often. A stamp in the top right corner and an address label or, or an address, handwritten address in the top left corner. Remember those days? Remember that? And, and you, you want to know, you want to know, it's written to me, my name's smack dab in the middle of it, and that's what I want to say about Ephesians. Your name is right smack in the middle of the envelope. It was written with you in mind. I know it seems unimaginable, but the Apostle Paul, he wouldn't have been able to say your name. He wouldn't have been able to envision us here today, but God, under God's sovereign care, that letter was written to you. It is addressed to you, it's given to you, and it's been preserved for us and kept for us so that we can sit around today, 2,000 years later, and read it together. And then in that top left corner, in the top left corner where it talks about who it's from, it says the Apostle Paul. So I just want to tell you a little bit of Paul's story because who the letter is written to and who the letter is written from are the most important items when you're getting ready to open a brand new letter. The Apostle Paul was raised in a Jewish home in, um, in a foreign land. He was not raised in Israel. He was raised in Tarsus. They sometimes refer to him as Paul of Tarsus. Um, in that community, there would have been a synagogue, and there would have been a Jewish community within that community, but he wasn't actually raised in Israel. However, when he was about 12 years old, um, he would have been shipped out to Israel because he attended a very prestigious school, the school of Gamaliel, in Jerusalem. He went to boarding school in Jerusalem, and his rabbi, Gamaliel, was the most famous rabbi of the day. And so he was in the highest and most prestigious of schools he could have gone to of the day. And according to his own testimony, he was head and shoulders above the other students at the school. So 
he just took to religious ideas. He got this. He loved the Bible. He loved the law. And so he followed the career path that would have been normal. He became a, a priest. He became a Pharisee. And then reaching the high point of his career, he became a member of the Sanhedrin. So he was a member of the high council of the Jewish priests. And the, so he's in a culture where church and state are not separated the way they are in our culture, but church and state are actually one in the same. And so when you, when, when, when you are in a, a, a culture like that, where God is really the head of your nation, you consider God to be the head of your nation, then your scriptures are your law books, and your law books are your scriptures. So they're one in the same. Paul was an expert in the law, meaning he was an expert in Scripture, and he would have had the entire Old Testament memorized, memorized. He had a, an undying passion for Scripture, and when this character came, named Jesus came onto the scene and began to preach this gospel that was diverse in many ways from what they understood. He was among the greatest of the persecutors. He was among those who said, uh-uh, not today, not in my house. We are not going to have this. He considered it blasphemy. And so he was on the team on the side of the scholars that was trying to stamp out the early church. He was persecuting the early church and trying to stamp out the early church. And he, um, f he thought as a Pharisee that he was kind of a watchdog. Like he was, he was, he was so, uh, so passionate about his own scriptures that he was willing to risk his own life to protect the integrity of scripture. In so doing, um, he knew that the right thing to do, or for him, the right thing to do was to persecute the church. And then, you know the story, if you've read Acts chapter 9, he was on his way to Damascus. He was leading a group of ruffians. They were on their way to Damascus because they'd heard that there were some followers of the way there, and riding through the desert, probably trying to get them all pumped up and ready to go, ready to go in there and ready to persecute some believers. The Lord hit him with kind of a bolt of lightning. If we understand the story correctly, just bam, he saw this great light, then he went blind, and then he heard the voice of Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And at that moment, he was dramatically converted. He was saved. He recognized that voice, and he recognized that vision, whatever it looked like to him in that blazing light, as the Lord Jesus Christ, and he knew that, that, he knew that Jesus was God. And from that time then, he went on into Damascus, he went out into Arabia, he went out into the desert, and he spent the next several years kind of in the dark. We, he disappears from the biographies. We don't, we don't really know what happens to him. He spent 11 years, 11 years, where we don't hear from him again until he, from the time he was converted, to the time he started his first missionary journey, 11 years. And then he went to, on to be one of the most prolific writers in our New Testament, only there alongside Luke, who was somebody that was part of his ministry, somebody he brought along beside him. Almost all of our New Testaments are written by, by Paul and Luke, this, this partnership in, in missions. And Paul became the primary articulator of the early church theology and doctrine. We believe what we believe because of the writing of the Apostle Paul. It is the nuts and bolts and the core of all of our creeds, of everything we believe as Orthodox Christians. But the 11 years catches my attention, and I want to use it to encourage you here today. Because you may be in a waiting period. You may feel like your life's gone dark. You may feel like this is, a, this is a season that you wouldn't have planned, that you didn't have in mind. If, this is, um, if you were writing the script, you would have not put this part in there. You may be wondering what God is doing, what he is up to, if he has a plan at all. And I'm here to encourage you that he does. And even if it's 11 years, even if it's a great deal of time, God has always, he is always, always, always at work behind the scenes. He's using us, and he's using the people in our lives, those who are encouraging us and those who are interacting with us. 
I think Paul spent that 11 years rereading the Bible he'd already memorized. I think he was rereading that Bible in light of the truth that now the king has come. The kingdom is here. We're living in it. We don't have to die before we go to the kingdom. We, we are now living in it. And he's rereading that with the fact that the Messiah, the Messiah, he had trained his eyes and ears and all of his senses to listen for and watch for and wait for had indeed come. That, that the king is here and is reigning in our hearts. I think he was rereading his Bible so that he could understand that. So that 11 years later when the Lord said, okay, we're ready and called him into the mission field, he was ready to lay down the truth that we now read in Scripture. Eleven years. God is working. He sees you. He hears you. He's attending to you. He's paying attention. Give God the time that he needs. So on page 129 in your Bibles, we read... Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is how he defines himself, and this is how he understands himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's how Paul writes about himself. Apostle, a sent one. One who has been recognized, one who has been acknowledged, and one whose voice, whose name has been called. That's how he sees himself. God decided to choose me. God decided to call me, and God gave me a passion, experiences, and ministry. Let me read to you just a little bit about Paul's own testimony. Um, I'm going to read to you from Galatians uh, chapter 1. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just listen to it as I read. But this is how Paul describes his own journey. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Jerusalem, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. The traditions is scripture and the Hebrew way, the Jewish way of living. The verse 15, this is chapter 1, verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult with any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. He went into Arabia. He spent three years in the desert. He disappeared into the desert and he rediscovered scripture. Then there's another several years that he disappears and he goes back to Tarsus. He goes back to his own hometown. And in the context of his own hometown, he rereads scripture and he rediscovers this relationship with God in light of who Jesus is before he ever presented himself to the disciples. Then after three years, that was in, Demath or in the desert, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, the head of the church at the time, and I stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, and only James, the Lord's brother, and I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia, and I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard this report. The man who, who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. That's how the Apostle Paul sees himself. He starts off by claiming that he's an apostle, that he is sent He's one, like an ambassador. He's one who's been given a message. He's been given a job. He's been given an assignment. He sees himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Why? Because that's what God wanted to do. And he will repeat over and over and over again in Ephesians chapter 1 especially, but throughout the letter, he'll repeat synonyms of the will of God, 
the purpose of God, the plan of God, predestined. God has got it all planned out. He worked out all the details. When? Before the foundations of the earth. Before creation even came into being. He already had this in his mind, and he already had this in his plans. Does it mean that he planned out every single minute detail? I don't think so. Does it mean that there's no such thing as an accident? I don't think so. But do I believe that God will have his way? He is sovereign, and he will have his will, and he will have his way. Is that encouraging? I hope so, because Paul wanted it to be encouraging. He, wanted, he was reminding himself, and he was reminding us in the story that he writes in Galatians, God set me aside from my mother's womb. I went down the path of becoming a student, becoming a rabbi, becoming a priest, a Pharisee, and, and finally, the height of his career, a member of the Sanhedrin. I followed the career path that I thought was right for me, but God has already set me aside from my mother's womb that I would be a preacher and a teacher and a proclaimer of the good news of the gospel. That was something that I discovered later. Amen? Did you ever have those moments where you think, God, God's been working this out, working out these details since before I ever paid the slightest bit of attention to him. Have you seen that pattern in your own life? It's like, this person came into my life before I ever knew the Lord. And they moved me. They just moved the trajectory of my life in a little bit of a direction that headed me to the next relationship, that headed me to the next relationship. God has got this. He's got it, and he's got you. He is keeping a hold of you and leading us. Mm. All right. Yes, love this word. Here's one more word I want you to pay attention to, and you'll read a little bit more about it in your study this week. But we've looked at, the, at that top left corner of, of the envelope where we can see the author, the writer of the letter. And now we're going to take a minute to examine right there in the center. <laughs> right there in the center. As I said, the letter was written to you. Uh, th th this letter is addressed to you. And who is it actually addressed to? The saints. S-A-I-N-T. Saint. It's a word that we use a lot in English, but because of the way we use it, I think it needs a little bit of help and explanation. We use the word saint um, sometimes in a traditional sense of people who have been found after their death to be particularly holy, that they run through a process of canonization is what they refer to. Mother Teresa actually completed this process of canonization just this last fall. In September of 2017, she was canonized, and now we refer to her as Saint Mother Teresa or Saint Teresa. I don't even, I think it's Saint Teresa is how they refer to her. But that was an achievement that took a lot of study and a lot of examination and a lot of testing of her life, a lot of interviews of people who knew her, a lot of, a lot of you know, she had to go through a whole lot of things after she died because the first qualification is that you're dead, okay, in order to become a saint. Then you run through this entire process that takes years, it's been 20 years for Mother Teresa, and hers was fast, that she was actually canonized and referred to as a saint. So on the one hand, we think of people who are uber, super holy and who have seen, demonstrated time and time again that, that, that their life is, is full of miracles and that their life meets certain standards, and then we call them a saint. The New Testament doesn't do that. The, the Apostle Paul doesn't do that. He takes the title saint and he slaps it on every one of us willy-nilly. We don't do anything to deserve it. We don't, cut, we don't pass any tests. Nobody has to interview anybody that we know. They, God knows absolutely everything about who we are and where we've been and what we done, we've done. And yet, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we're immediately referred to as saints. We qualify. This is our new name. We learn how to live up to the name. That takes a little time sometimes, right? But, but the fact that we are saints, that's declared from the very beginning. It is part of the transaction that happens at our salvation. We are holy ones. That's the literal meaning of the word 
hagios, which is translated saint in our English Bibles. We are holy. Holiness is part of God's work in us, and it happens immediately at the moment of our salvation. So you, you can take your own name, Saint, and, and put your name behind it, Saint Deidre. You can do that in your own mind and imagination. Does it, it's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? You're like, what? No. That doesn't sound right. No way. I don't qualify. But the Apostle Paul is here to tell you that you do. You qualify. By your faith in Jesus Christ, you are already a saint. We're going to learn a little bit about how to work that out in our lives, how to live up to that, how to live like a saint, how to act like a saint, how to walk around like a saint. We're going we're gonna to learn that together, but the fact that you already are, that's it. So right in the center of the envelope is St. Deidre, St. Fill in your own name. That's who the letter was written to. As we examine it line by line and, and verse by verse, we're going to learn lots of good stuff about ourselves we're going to learn lots of good stuff about God, and then we're going to learn how to behave in a manner worthy of the calling saint to which now we have been called. <clears throat> um, I, many of you know the part of my story that, uh, and, and Ruana re referred to it a little bit in the introduction, um, that my husband and I adopted two children. Uh, actually, we just had our ninth Frank Laversary. Yes, we I had dinner with our kids the other night at celebrating our Frank Laversary that my family hates, hates that I call it that, but it cracks me up, so I keep doing it. Um, but every year on January 23rd, we celebrate the Frank Laversary. Um, we, uh, that was the day of our adoption. We adopted our children in a courthouse, and then we came here to the church, and we had a big old worship service, and we had an adoption ceremony. It was kind of like a wedding. We said vows. The kids said vows. My parents said vows. All the grandparents and aunts and uncles, we all said these vows to each other and promised to be a good family to one another. It was a beautiful, beautiful time. Then we came in here, and we ate a ton of food, and it was, it was a wonderful day. I happened to be teaching Ephesians when, during this period of time, during this season of, of life, when we adopted children. It was not the first time I had done Ephesians, but, but as I did, um, I began to see this story of adoption unfolding in Ephesians, and, and ever since then, there's no way I can read Ephesians in any other way. This is, this is what I think Paul was thinking. He's like, how do I describe to these precious people in the city of Ephesus and in the surrounding regions, how do I describe to them how precious they are and how, how, how wonderful they are in the eyes of God? How do I describe it? He says, I know I'm going to write an adoption story. So we are going to learn, particularly in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, that we are adopted. And in Ephesians chapter 1, the, the verses that you're going to take a look at when you go home this week, you are going to see how blessed you are because you are a child of the king, because you have been brought in off of the streets, a street urchin before he called your name. He, you have been brought in off of the streets, and you have been placed in this big, beautiful house, the house of God, and Abba, Father, is the head of this house. He is our Father. He has called us, chosen us, cherished us, loved us, he homeschools us. He gives us an education. And then he gives us chores to do. But we're not going to get to the chores until we get to chapter 4. Because when you are adopted into the family of God, you do. You receive all of these amazing blessings. But that's not all you do. You grow up. You grow up in the house of God. And as you grow up, you start to make your own contributions. You start to, to behave in such a way that you're bringing to this entire family, you're bringing your own contribution. We're going to start reading about that in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So what we're going to find in chapters 1, 2, 3 of Ephesians, that, that in these chapters, Paul is giving us theology. He's giving us doctrine. He's giving us creeds. He's outlining an orthodox idea of who God is and who we are. We're going to learn. We're going to do a lot of classroom work 
in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. And then we're going to turn the page in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to go to chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now, it just so happens that Ephesians lays out 50-50. Not all of Paul's letters do this so nicely. But in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the last three chapters, then we're going to take what we learn in the classroom, and we're going to take it out into the field, and we're going to put it into practice. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, we're going to see a lot of indicative verbs. These are verbs that, that, that are a statement of fact, a statement of being. This is this way. This is who God is. This is who you are. This is what Jesus did. Therefore, you are a saint. This is who God is, and because of that, you have this particular identity. Statements of fact, indicative statements. And then when we get to chapter 4, Paul begins to use imperative verbs. He tells us what to do and what not to do. He says, now, now listen, in, in light of chapters 1, 2, 3, this is what I want you to do. do I want you to do this and do this and don't do this and don't do this. And he teaches us how to behave in a manner that is worthy of the first three chapters of Ephesians. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I want you to get out there and walk. You don't just sit there in the classroom and read and study and become smarter and smarter. We're going to get out there and we're going to walk it out. Okay? We're going to walk it out. That's what's coming for us in Ephesians. Ladies, I am so thrilled that you've chosen to take this journey with me and with one another. So this week, I want you to go home and do the homework for week one in Ephesians in your workbook. I want you to pray. Be sure to cover your daily time in prayer. I've written a few suggestions for prayer in your, in your workbook. Hopefully, that'll get you praying in the right direction. Um, if you have any trouble with that, if not, just ignore those. Um, pray do your study for, for week one and keep in, t- in contact with each other as well. If you have any questions or anything, anything strikes you as funny or weird or something you want to ask about, feel free to do that. You're also very welcome to contact me. My name is Deidre Franklin. You can call up here to the church and ask for me, and they would love to, to pass you through to me. You can also email me. You can also text me. I'm, I'm available. I am the pastor of women. You guys are women. I'm your pastor. Okay? That's how that works. I am available to you. I would love to get to know you. I'd love to talk with you and love to walk with you through some of this stuff.